one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm John McEnroe. I'm Bjorn Borg. This is Martina Navratilova. I'm Mats Wilander. I'm Stan Wawrinka. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Andy Murray. And you're listening to The Tennis Podcast. <laughs> So day one of the WTA finals is done and dusted and it has been pretty eventful. It's been fascinating to watch the first of the additions in Shenzhen. Ten years it's going to be there. Uh, Matt Roberts and myself are here to review it. We've also got an interview with Andrew Bettles, the coach of Alina Svitolina, to look ahead to tomorrow and generally just find out about the life of a of a travelling coach because uh, it's we, we've not had too many opportunities to talk to people uh, on that score. We've also got matches going on all day long. And Matt and I have been trying to work out when do we record the tennis podcast today because we've got Federer against Dimonor in the final of Basel at the moment. We've got uh, the Vienna final going on at the moment between uh, Dominic Team and uh, Diego Schwartzman. But we've got podcasts coming out of our ears. We're, we're going to be back tomorrow, Catherine and I. So we'll do the full review of uh, of, of the men tomorrow uh, as well as the uh, the second day of the women's matches at the WTA finals. But Matt, let's start with Shenzhen because uh, we were up bright and early to watch the uh, the coverage today, and on TV it looked, I thought, really good. We had uh, first match of the day: Petra Kvitova against Naomi Osaka, then Ash Barty against Belinda Bencic, both three setters. What did you think of the actual staging of the event? It's the first time we've seen it: new sort of colours, new court, new field. I thought it looked really good. Basically. I want to be able to see the ball when I watch a tennis match. And I thought the colour scheme that they have, the sort of purple court on a kind of grey background, worked really well. I thought it was quite easy on the eye and you could see the ball really easily. Um, there was a pretty, pretty good crowd in making yeah. a decent noise. I think you were saying that the capacity is limited to about 6,500 at the moment and they are expecting their biggest crowds at the weekend. So it'll be interesting to monitor that throughout the week if it, if it does drop. But for a first day, I thought, it was, I thought it was a really good staging of the event and the mm. tennis was a kind of good illustration of what the women's game is all about at the moment in that yeah. you had so many different kind of styles on offer. The first match was very much two power baseline players up against each other, whereas the second was more about variety and angles and all sorts of tricks that Barty and Bengtschich can produce. Yeah, and I think the key to the the atmosphere, I mean, as you say, 6,500 doesn't sound that many. Of course, it doesn't uh, compared to some of the stadia that we see around the tennis world, but I would much rather that 
than a cavernous stadium with a handful of people in mm. it that, that feels empty. This actually felt full. It felt noisy. And particularly for the Osaka match, which was up first, there was a real appetite for that. I mean, obviously, that was a little earlier in the day as well. So I think... You know, people people can make that time of day probably, as particularly at a weekend. And and as you say, it'll be fascinating to see over the course of the the week, the weekdays particularly, what what the atmosphere is like. Let's uh, let's just have a little look at those matches one at a time first of all, because Kvitova came out of the blocks so explosively, didn't she? She was leading two love. She was break points up in the third game. And I was marvelling at that particular point at the end of the first set because Osaka won this match in three sets ultimately. But she won that first set despite being down a break and nearly two breaks. And I was really impressed at that stage with her mental calm and and you know dealing with the ups and downs of the Kvitova game. But that didn't last the whole match. We had, we had so many different ups and downs that it was it was actually... I don't think it was the highest quality match. It wasn't like their Australian Open final, but it was just intriguing. There was loads going on there. Yeah, in terms of the scoreline, it was kind of eerily similar to their Australian Open final, but the quality wasn't quite there as it as it had been in Melbourne, which I still think was one of the best matches of the year at that Australian Open final in terms of quality. And at the start of this one, it was I was finding it really difficult to tell how well Osaka was playing, simply because she wasn't being allowed to play because Kavita was just striking the ball so well and she she looked she must be one of the cleanest strikers of a tennis ball ever when she's on and she was just you know that easy power winners flying but then Osaka got a foothold in the match with a with a hold from double break point down at two love and then Kvitova's level kind of gradually fell off um there's very, there's very little light and shade in Kvitova's game. She's kind of either on or she's off. And it was very much like that throughout the match. She had these brilliant games, but then she also had these terrible ones, particularly the first set tiebreak where she just made just a string of unforced errors and and Osaka managed to um, to win the first set. I also thought Kvitova's serve was a bit of a liability. I think... Osaka had spoken before the match saying, I'm expecting it to be really difficult facing Kvitova's serve, particularly because it's that sort of lefty, lefty slice. But Osaka was returning so well on the backhand. I think Kvitova was maybe changing her angles a bit and she threw in so many double faults. Um, and yeah, as you said, the match kind of was re- got really interesting from a sort of psychological perspective at the end of the second set, start of the third set, where we had a coaching timeout with with Osaka's dad. Um, so Osaka was just about to lose the second set and her her dad came on and said, you need, to, you need to stay calm. You play your best when you stay calm. And Osaka said, well, it takes so much to stay calm. I'm kind of, it's tiring. And I'm not a naturally calm person, which was such a fascinating sort of visceral insight into Osaka. I, I almost feel a bit like they're a bit intrusive sometimes, those coaching timeouts, because they do reveal so much, um, especially when they're in English and we can understand them. A wider point here is we didn't actually get to hear that much from a Kvitova perspective in, in terms of English-speaking audience. I do, I do find it weird that a 
that the WTA hasn't invested in translators for the broadcasters, given that they've been trialing this coaching thing for what seems like, well, it's about 10 years now, I think, isn't it? And sort of the biggest biggest way to justify it is the sort of entertainment that it provides. Well, if, if a large portion of the audience can't understand it, where is the entertainment? But that's a, that's a separate point. But I just think it was fascinating, Osaka, because a lot of people, a lot of the pundits were responding to Osaka's comments in that coaching timeout and almost seeing it as a bit of a sign of weakness, as though she was admitting that she was kind of tired mentally. But really, that, I felt that was slightly missing the point because... The very fact that Osaka was willing to open up to talk about her emotions is a sign of strength. And it's one of the hardest things to do, talk about how you're feeling. And Osaka is so good at that, so honest with us. And it almost acts as a bit of a release. We've, we've, we've spoken about how her press conferences, she uses them as almost catharsis. Well, I think she used this timeout in, in, that, in that same way. Yeah, and Pat, and actually... The, look, she went uh, along then and won the third set. It's not like it mm. had a detrimental effect on her at all. And and I think the the other slight confusion as to as to, from from some quarters was whether she was talking about being tired physically, and that's not what she was saying. And it's not about being burnt out from exertion over the course of the year or anything like that. She was. It was the moment that she was finding tough. She was. Yeah. She was saying that I'm basically I'm having to battle my innate tendencies and mm. I, by by trying to stay calm I'm having to f- effectively rewire myself on the spot and and that is really hard work and tiring for me that that's essentially what what she was saying um which which I I think a lot of people can relate to really in in everyday life is you know it's all well and good sort of knowing that the best thing you can do is not panic or not uh, not get uh, too upset, or uh, which is the, the words her dad was using, but it's another thing to actually go out and do it yourself, and, and it's really difficult to do it. Um, the the other thing is, I I did wonder watching that uncut coaching session is, I de- the, I'm not sure she would have said it in quite that way to anybody other than her dad, um, because mm. she came across like a child in that moment, and I don't mean that as a as a criticism. I I, I just it's just an observation of, of I, I can imagine that kind of parent-child conversation happening in all walks of life, you know, where you, mm. you it's, just, it's just too hard. This is just, I don't want to, this isn't me, or I don't want to do this, or whatever. And the, the parent is, because his follow-up was, look, all I'm saying is, you've done it before, and that's when you play your best tennis. <laughs> you know, everything he was saying was totally rational. And once she'd sort of, got it out of a system, she then went and actually did it. Yeah, and in the same way that Osaka was very much the daughter in that coaching timeout, he was very much the father rather than just the coach. You know, He was saying things like, you're at your best when you're calm. And you can almost imagine him, he's maybe even not thinking about tennis moments where he's seen Osaka be calm before. He's talking about growing up and experiences they've had together as a father and daughter and yeah it was it was a really lovely moment and it was kind of continued on from their really positive nice coaching exchanges that we saw in Beijing as well and mm. a lot of talk this year about uh, Osaka's coaching situation and 
the impact that leaving Sasha Bayan ha- may or may not have had. But certainly at the moment, she seems to be in a really good place with her father coming onto court just occasionally. And this is now the 11th, 11th match in a row that she's won since the since the US Open. Wow, that's a great, great stat. Um, talking of good stats, I just saw your stat about Ash Barty having sealed the year-end number one ranking, which is uh, quite a line, isn't it? She's beaten Belinda Bencic from a set down. It was a very, very tight first set. Then Bencic, I think, towards the end of that first set or in the second set, had an injury timeout and had her heel strapped or a foot strapped um and then it was a very different match now i I suspect it was probably partly benchish's level dropping as as a i would have thought something to do with that foot now we haven't i haven't read the press conference transcript from her yet i don't think she's been in yet but i did hear barty after the match and she seemed very satisfied and 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 level about her her form today there was no panic there was there because i did think when she lost that first set that must be a tough one to stomach when it's that close but she turned it around pretty dramatically yeah she didn't play a great first set i think it was 20 unforced errors in that first set and then just nine for the rest of the match so she really cleaned her game up ash barty um yeah, difficult to say exactly how much Benchik's left left sort of heel injury or foot injury was was the reason for that because it was already starting to go Barty's way a little bit more that second set. Um, and yeah, so Ash Barty, the first Australian woman to finish the year ranked world number one. She's also That's the cool line, youngest of youngest to finish world number one since Azarenka about seven years ago, I think. Um, and yeah, to think that this is her first WTA finals, even as a singles player, and she's come into it as the world number one, and she'll finish it as the world number one, and yet, kind of feels it kind of feels right, kind of feels normal mm. based on the year she's had. It just just shows how quickly we adjust to these things. Um, but yeah, she's she's managed to be both consistent this year and also have big wins, which I think has, has really elevated her. She, she always had a nice game. She was always good to watch, but she's really become just someone that you trust to win big matches now. Yeah, she she, she does look the real deal as the world number one, and it's, it's, it's great to see. And it's a great to see, actually, the whole group, really, this divide of new players on the block and established players that have been around for a while and have kept on reproducing, one of which... Is kind of caught between the two stalls. I, I feel is is Alina Svitolina because she's been qualifying for these tournaments for a long time now, and yet she's still a young woman. And her coach these days, and has been for the last couple of years, is Andrew Bettles, a British guy who I've I've seen around the tour a, a few times and had one or two conversations with him, and, and was delighted when we got chance to speak to him very early this morning. Uh, I got my timings ever so slightly wrong because I didn't know that the <laughs> clocks had gone back uh, when I woke up this morning and I set my alarm to an hour ahead of uh, time because we're, we were seven hours behind here in the UK and I thought, oh, I'll give myself a good hour to get set up before t- talking to Andrew and uh, lo and behold, the phone went and it was Andrew. Yeah, I think uh, quietly confident, um, kind of really happy uh, that she qualified this year. I think it's a great achievement um, and looking forward for her defending the title. I think she's in a good place. 
Yeah. I mean, how big, how big a deal was that for her last year, do you think? Because, I mean, as you said, she's qualified again and she's been doing that consistently for years now. And that, that in itself is an achievement. But to, to actually win the thing is, is a significant step again, isn't it? Yeah, I think that was a big step in, in her career. Um, obviously, you beat five top eight players in one week. Uh, that's an amazing achievement and something unique that you won't do any other tournament of the year because you don't get the opportunity, firstly. But um, to kind of yeah win so many important matches and uh, make that breakthrough at the right, the um, most important, one of the most important tournaments of the year was, uh, was amazing. What do you put that down to? Uh, Andrew because I mean she came into the event last year actually not on that great a run and yet she suddenly produced that run of matches did did you see that come in did you sense it at the time uh no I'd be lying if I said I sensed it I think uh it was everything kind of clicked at the right time um she was probably playing under quite a bit of pressure the last couple of months of last year because she was working so hard to try and qualify then actually into the last week it was out of her hands she wasn't playing the other two players were playing they didn't qualify um so maybe the pressure kind of just all left and she went out there and was kind of a bit relaxed playing with nothing to lose so much and everything clicked and she played great tennis quite an interesting turn of phrase as well to be playing without pressure because i mean every every player as a human being will react differently but I've seen a lot of Alina's matches. I've seen a lot of your coaching on court exchanges. And I, I wondered what you feel is the main part of your job in order, in order to get her in that mind space where she is playing free like that. Yeah, it's ne- that's, that's never easy. And obviously, that's always, as an athlete, that's the ideal kind of state of mind you'll be in. But circumstances mean that it's very rarely like that. So... Um, I try and try and relax her, um, try and get her to play free, to play aggressive, but at the same time, do things that she does well, which is fight, be consistent, make a lot of balls, play a high intensity. So playing to her strengths, and then also at the same time, you know, adding a little bit of a little bit more aggression mm. into the game. And, and and she took that into this year, didn't she? I mean, did you feel that that acted as a, as a springboard because she's ended up reaching new ground at the Grand Slams this year? Yeah, yeah, it's been good. I think she's she's had the confidence from last year and the biggest stage that she can do it. Um, it's been a kind of uh, a tricky year for her because she's been managing an injury a little bit. Um, but she has uh, made back-to-back semis at um, Wimbledon in US, which has been fantastic. How's the injury now? Yeah, um, it's it's uh, better. Like the hard courts is always difficult. Um, it's tough on the knees, but she's moving great in practice and has been uh, pretty much pain-free as far as uh, I can see. That's good, yeah. I saw she was wearing the knee brace uh, at the last tournament that I, that I covered, um, but uh, that's good to hear. Um, I just wanted... People will have seen you now for a few years courtside with Alina. I remember when Nigel Sears was coaching Anna Ivanovic. You were, you were part of that team as, as a hitting partner there. Some people are probably wondering, how do you become a coach and particularly get to be a coach of somebody who's a top player like Alina Svetlina? How did, it, how did this journey happen for you? Yeah, I mean, it was kind of uh, probably a situation, uh, um, the right place at the right time. Um but also maybe I took my 
I uh, took my opportunity um, and proved that I had the ability to be a good coach. Um, like you said, uh, Nigel Sears gave me an opportunity with Anna as a hitting partner. Um, we did that together for a year and then Alina asked me um, to do the same thing and then that quickly changed into assistant coach. So I did uh, lots of weeks um, on my own with her and I think uh, they went well and so she gave me more responsibility and as time kind of uh, progressed, um, kind of spent 18 months to two years in that role. Um, so I probably knew her at that point better than anyone else, kind of what made her tick as a player. Um, and we got on well off the court, um, which probably helps the on-court relationship as well. So um, that was good. And she, she gave me the res- responsibility and, and I hope I've uh, kind of returned the favour with um, another good year for her this year. Yeah, well, it certainly seems to be going well. And she starts against Karolina Pliskova. She's in a group with also Bianca Andreescu and Simona Halep. I just wondered, when you come into these matches, I mean, they're all very different players. How detailed do you go when it comes to strategizing these sort of matches? Yeah, I think it's a balance because obviously you want your player to play her own game and focus on that. But um, there's no point ignoring there's a very different game styles in each match. And that's the thing I think I like most about this tournament is that um, Alina's played all the players this year. We know them all very well. So I think you can be quite specific in um, uh, kind of small details in kind of things you should do, things you should be trying to do throughout the match. And you can probably go into a bit more detail because you have a bit more time to prepare. And now we know who she's playing. So I can kind of look into a bit more stats, look at some old footage um, of their matches and uh, where in other tournaments you probably get less than 24 hours to prepare. Do do you tend to give it to her in sort of a, a, a handful of bullet points is is that the way you go yeah um i don't want to overload her with information um she knows every match she has to bring you know certain things um regardless of who she's playing and then um kind of add in a few kind of things that the opponent's going to try and do and things that alina can do to play the match on her own terms a couple of final points. So I mentioned Karen Pliskova as the first one. She lost the first five matches she played against her. Then she won the next three. So it's 5-3. But she's turned that rivalry, that head-to-head around. What, what, what do you put that down to? Um, I think in general, Lena's kind of over the last couple of years um, improved at playing big hitters. That was always something, especially when I started working with her three years ago, that she wasn't so fond of um, playing the big hitters, people who could blast off the court. Um, and we worked really hard on that, um, kind of adjusting her game a bit to try and take control and not let them dictate as much. I think it's kind of putting her out of her comfort zone a bit. We all know she can run and make 30 balls in a row, Um but it's difficult to, you know, hit one, two, three shots with real quality, try and take time away from the opponents. So, yeah, it's kind of, uh, we, uh, you know, practice a lot on it. Um, big serving, me kind of hitting big ground strokes from, from ball feeding as well, hitting big and kind of just adjusting her game slightly so she could be more comfortable playing those big, uh, uh, big hitters. Excellent. And, and Carolina was saying that the court speed is pretty slow. Is that your sense? Yeah, um, kind of same as Singapore was as well, uh, pretty slow surface. So kind of hopefully we'll see Alina and we'll um, expect some long rallies. 
Excellent. Well, Andrew, wish you the very best of luck. Thanks ever so much for your time. Perfect. Thanks, Lardos. So, Andrew Bettles, lovely to have him with us. And thanks to the WTA communication staff for setting that up for us. Um, Matt, he he's an impressive young man, isn't he? And he, and he is a young man. He's, he's done it incrementally. Uh, I remember when he started working alongside Nigel Sears. Nigel told me he'd met this or he he knew this young lad who he was going to bring on board with Anna Ivanovic as a hitting partner and and that lasted for about a year before Ivanovic decided to to eventually retire and he always came across well then and he particularly comes across well in these on-court coaching episodes with Svitolina yeah he really does and i i really liked what uh what he was saying about the way Svitolina's game has transformed against some of the some of the bigger hitters, um, because there's a lot of them on the WTA tour, and that really was something that Svitolina used to used to struggle with. But in these in these last two or three years, he spoke about how how uh, she's turned her head to head record against Pliskova around, who obviously she plays tomorrow. So it'll be interesting to see whether she can keep that going. And yeah, he he just seems like a really good influence on Svitolina, part of part of a part of Svitolina's year I think has been getting getting comfortable off court and that kind of translates onto onto on court um but yeah David I just I just wanted to say for for most people the clocks going back are a really good experience it's an extra it's an extra hour in bed but you've somehow managed to turn it into a mass panic (laughs) this morning (laughs) yeah that's exactly what it was. Catherine seems absolutely overjoyed about the fact that they went back an hour because that means an hour of extra sleep, exactly. which was particularly useful on this occasion because uh, Catherine was at a Halloween party in a in a very elaborate uh, fancy dress get-up and she actually won the prize, didn't she, Matt? Yeah, the, the best costume. The winning costume, yes. Although she said that she mainly won... Well, Part of the reason was that she misjudged how costume-centric the party was going to be. I, I, I really hope she wasn't the only one in costume because I feel like... <laughs> I kind of do I, hope. <laughs> I feel like that's like turning up to school in your own clothes when it's not an own clothes day. I remember, I remember someone doing that at my school and just never, never living it down. What did she come as again? She was Princess Buttercup from, from Princess Bride. Right. Uh, and if you'd like if you'd like to see a picture of that go to our instagram page and uh, and it's there in all its glory and Catherine will be back tomorrow to tell us all about it and she really nailed it as a, as a look it was we drew up the sort of side by side with her costume versus the the real thing and yeah it was it was it was spot on right. very good uh, okay Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering Tennis Podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. Uh, now, there are other matches going on at the moment. I should say um, Svitolina against Pliskova is the match tomorrow, as we were talking about with Andrew there. The other match of the day is Bianca Andreescu against Simona Halep. It's going to be fascinating, isn't it? Matches start at mm. uh, 10.30 local time, I think, tomorrow. Yes, they do. Uh, well, there's a doubles match first. Um, I say local time. I mean British time. 6.30 local time in the evening it is uh, tomorrow in China and Shenzhen and it's Pliskova against Fitolina followed by Andrescu against Simona Halep so we'll look forward to that I'll be getting a chance to, to commentate on that on BT Sport so I'm very much looking forward to that um, and we will bring you a tennis podcast with Catherine straight afterwards and in that podcast we'll also talk about the result of Roger Federer against Alex Diminor which is going on at the moment Federer has a set point I mean the the ovation he got. I mean, it's no great surprise that he would get a big ovation in, in, in Basel. He's trying for his 10th title, isn't he? Yeah, so I think he's trying to become the first man to win 10 titles on two different surfaces because he's already won 10 on grass in <laughs> in Halle and now he's trying to get 10 indoors in Basel. It's just, it's just absurd, really. Um, he seems to... What a great stat. He does kind of seem to win those events just every year. So I suppose it's natural that he's going to he's going to get to 10. But I I must say I found the I must say, I found his introduction quite amusing. Did you hear what they said? They said um he's he's the world number 3 but he's our number our world number 1 Roger Federer. It's sort of <laughs> That's not quite how it works, I don't think. <laughs> We're ignoring the facts. Yeah. Here's Roger Federer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so anyway, I, I should say as well, he, he's playing Alex Dimonor, and it takes me back, this does Matt, because the second final that Federer reached out of his 157 finals Oof. was in Basel in 2000, and I was there. And in the semis... He beat, for the very first time in his career, 
Leighton Hewitt. Oh wow! And it is like it is like nineteen years on. <laughs> Leighton Hewitt's just sent a member of his family, like his nephew, out to go and get revenge for him or something. Because I mean, for the first few years, Hewitt completely dominated that rivalry. He, he's beaten him nine times in total. I think it's eighteen nine in favour of Federer. Eventually, just got got his measure and turned it around. But that particular semi final. Federer won 6-4, 5-7, 7-6. And it was an 8-6 third set tiebreak. And it was just electric. And that, I mean, that was before Federer was really Federer. He'd, mm. he'd not beaten Pete Sampras yet. He hadn't, uh, he hadn't won any grand slams yet. But he was full of promise, you know, and you're just waiting for him to, to burst out and prove it. But in this particular semifinal, Hewitt, who was, you know, on his way to becoming world number one himself at that time, was public enemy number one in front of the crowd and and uh, giving them a load back um, and and eventually Federer I think he had match point against him in that tie break and he and he framed a backhand that hit the line oh. um, and and just, so he got a bit lucky and then he produced a couple of awesome points to to win the match and I remember him saying to me afterwards. Um, the, what Hewitt does is is he puts so much pressure on your sort of the insides of your thighs because of the movement. The side-to-side movement is like nothing else he'd faced before. That's how quick Hewitt was. And that's what Diminor, you can see him trying to move him around at the moment. It's not working very well um, <laughs> because Federer's just having his way. But it, it is so interesting to watch that sort of story arc of Federer's career when he was a he was such a young guy. He was a teenager at that point. And, and we still didn't know then whether he would ever make it mm. at the highest level, I, whether the potential would ever be realised. And here we are 20 Grand Slam titles later. <laughs> yeah, I, I always find that fascinating because in my tennis watching lifespan, Federer has always been Federer as we know him now, you know, all-time great. So I, I've always think that early period of Federer's career, looking back on it now, must must be so fascinating for you. For you in particular, you know, no, you know, knowing him as you did at the time a little bit and knowing what he's become. Yeah, and it's interesting because Di Minaur is a bit of a mini-me in terms of Hewitt, in terms of game style, but he's certainly not that public enemy number one that you were saying Hewitt was. He sort no. of, I mean, Hewitt, he's, Hewitt won, he's so nice, Di Minaur. Seemed, seemed to relish it. The, you know, the more mm. on his opponent's side the crowd got, the more Hewitt liked it. He was kind of, a, there was a little bit of Medvedev about him in that way. Um, and he, yeah, he was taking everybody on, but Federer got the better of him in that that day and then ended up losing to Thomas Enquist in the final. I remember it was two tie breaks. He didn't quite have enough left in the tank. Um, but it was just another step, you know, it was just one of those mm. steps to, to what he would end up becoming. But even back then, you know, 20 years ago, the crowd were, were convinced in Basel. He was, he was their man and he hadn't even won the title at that point. Um, so <laughs> there we are. And, he's, he, and, and, he, and he's, it took him, sorry, I was going to say, it took him a while to win in Basel. I think, I think I was reading his first title was 06, which if you oh, really? think about it, he'd, you know, he'd been a, he'd been a Wimbledon champion for, what three years by then? Um, mm. But he always seems to reach the final, um, and his level this week has been so high. So yeah. sort of, I think it's I think it's the best tennis he's played yeah. since it's Wimbledon for off, sure. Mm. Mm. Uh, the other one is he's, he's in schooled Sitsapass. He did, yeah. Oh crikey, yeah. I saw that yesterday. I mean, that was 
Sitsipas, I think, do you think Sitsipas sometimes can struggle a little bit indoors against guys like him? They can take his mm. time away, can't they? He doesn't have that blocked return yet that I, th- I think mm. he probably needs to develop. And yeah, Federer just was all, all over him yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. So um, that's uh, that's Basel. We'll let you know. Well, we'll we'll recap the result. You can go and look the result up yourself. Uh, But we'll recap it in tomorrow's podcast (laughs) there with Catherine. Um, And in Vienna at the moment, we've got Dominic Thiem in his home tournament trying to stay alive against Diego Schwartzman. You were taken by the reaction to Thiem yesterday. We were talking about Basel and about how, how... happy they were about Roger Federer and being one of their own. And team really feels like he's he's embraced being hometown hero this week. Yeah, I've just I've just switched it on now as he's gone as he's got to set point against Schwartzman and the you know standing ovation just for just to be able to get to set point. He really gets a lot of love there. Um I couldn't believe that this was his tenth year playing the tournament. It, it seems amazing to me that he's yeah, that he's been around long enough to be able to play 10 Viennas. Um, a, couple, a couple of those, I think he only played the qualifying. But yeah, yesterday was, I think it was Austria's national day and he, he came back to beat uh, Berrettini. And it's just really nice because someone like Team in big matches, he's often playing one of the big big three and often they have more of the support. And just to see him really step up in his in his home tournament and get such love is just really cool to see i think for because mm. he is such a good player and he's such he's he's a much better player on hard courts than he was even 18 months ago he really has made strides and he's just leveled this match against schwartzman um but yesterday against berrettini i was struck by just just how much smarter he was than than he used to be because berrettini was was really beating him, but team figured out that he he had to find Berrettini's backhand, which he just wasn't doing, and he he figured out ways to be able to do it and really turn the match around. And I just think a year, two years ago, he wouldn't have done that. He'd have started blasting the ball and trying to just hit winners, and but that wasn't working. He had to figure it out, and he did. And I think Nicholas Massou probably gets a lot of the credit for that because. Yeah. A noticeable impact on team's game this season. Do we know what that means for Berrettini and the ATP finals? Does that put him out of contention? Do you know? No, he's, st- he's still in contention. I think Zverev remarkably oh, is to come, isn't there? Mm. So Zverev lost first round, but I don't think lost any ground on in the in the race to London. It's kind of still Berrettini, Bautista Agu, and Monfils are right on Zverev's heels, and and two of those will will get in. And as things stand, everybody's playing Paris, aren't they? I mean, I, I, when was the last time that everybody oh, yeah. played Paris? Yeah, it would be remarkable if, if that did happen. I think the only the only question mark is probably Federer at this stage. If he wins Basel, he might think, mm. I don't need it. But I, Nadal's there. He's been practising with Djokovic, which is a bit a bit rare, I think, for two of those three to be practising with each other. Um, so, yeah, they're all there and... Normally that throws up a bit of a surprise champion. I suppose it might still, but with Nadal and Djokovic in the draw, they'll obviously be be the favourites. Yeah, yeah. A well, apart of other, from Medvedev. Uh, yes, oh, obviously. Uh, a couple he of wins other points. He wins everything. He doesn't lose. Him and Andreescu. You know, yeah. <laughs> former mixed doubles partnership. <laughs> Nobody beat them. Anyway, 
another couple of results of note. Joe Salisbury and Ranjiv Ram won the doubles in Vienna. So Salisbury and Ram are in the ATP finals. Salisbury is the sole British player who's going to be at the ATP finals this year, which uh, I, I don't think we'd have been expecting that at the start of the year as Roger Federer no. breaks for two love um, and leading by a set to love. Salisbury um, also... But it's a nice story. He's... Sorry, he, he also hit the best shot ever today. Did he? What well, describe? I know those are big words, but the more I think about it, the more I think I've never seen a better shot in my life. He was he was lobbed and he was literally not in the picture. He wasn't on screen and suddenly he hit a tweener, which you, you only found out it was a tweener on the replay because you couldn't see him hit it, cross court for a clean winner at an obscene amount of pace on it as well. And everyone's just sort of thought, how in the world have you done that, Joe Salisbury, including Joe Salisbury? <laughs> ah, fantastic. So well done to him. Uh, we have Roger and Takao have won the Basel doubles final against uh, Riley Opelka and uh, Taylor Fritz Opelka, actually. I think, he didn't he get to the semis as well? Or the mm. quarters, I can't remember, in Basel, but he had a good run. Um, uh, Zuhai Arena Sabalenka has won the title, beating Kiki Burton. So once again, Sabalenka finishes the year fantastically well. And uh, maybe next year is the one where she breaks through and goes all the way to the WTA finals herself. It's um, it's certainly been a good run for her. And uh, anything else, Matt, before we head off? Well, yeah, just on Sabalenka. So, so she's she's there in the doubles, isn't she, in, in Shenzhen with Mertens? But in her, in, in her singles this year... Um, Tamini Carriol pointed out that she's 17 and 2 in China and 23 and 20 everywhere else. Those are her win loss records. So, because she won, mm. she won the tour event in Shenzhen at the start of the year, of the year and now has won Wuhan and Zhuhai. But it was just a bit in between where you were kind of left wondering what was going on. But she, um, she said that she thinks it's been an important year because. Last year, she didn't really understand what she was doing on the court. She, didn't, she almost didn't understand how she was winning. She was just playing tennis. Whereas her struggles in the middle part of this year, she started to think about her game a little bit more and know what works and what doesn't. And therefore, she feels like she can go on the court with a bit more confidence. Whether she can carry this into next year, who knows? But it's certainly pleasing that her ranking hasn't sort of plummeted massively, which she, which was a possibility if she didn't have a good Asian swing. So she'll be she'll be right there again next year, and hopefully hopefully can have a more consistently strong season throughout. Okay, well, you know how we were talking about treeing yesterday. Roger Federer, by our <laughs> Urban Dictionary definition, is officially tree. He's just hit a forehand half-volley passing shot off his toes on the baseline. Oh, wow. And he's just gone three-love up, three-love ahead and a set ahead. I mean, they've been playing for 45 minutes. It's... <laughs> It's just absurd. This it's the thirty-eight-year-old playing against what twenty-year-old. Um, oh, it, it's are you? It's remarkable that Federer's highest level at thirty-eight is still pretty much the highest, sort of certainly yeah. there or thereabouts. And the fact that he's able certainly the most to, spectacular. And the fact that he's able to find that highest level, okay, maybe less regularly than he did. 10 years ago, but he's still finding it pretty regularly. This is like an exhibition. I'm afraid, I mean, I feel sorry for a Diminor. There's nothing he can do about mm. it. Anyway, uh, so we'll we'll look back on the last two games of it uh, <laughs> tomorrow. 
uh, when uh, Catherine and I uh, get together for uh, another edition of the Tennis Podcast. Matt, thank you for your company as always. Thank you, David. And uh, we will be back with more brought to you in association with the Telegraph Executive produced by TennisBalls.com. Our mascot is Rio with a Y. Don't forget, you can still get that 15% off code uh, for tickets for the Davis Cup by Rakuten finals, which take place between the 18th and the 24th of November. If you go to daviscupfinals.com and put in the code TTP Davis Cup Finals, you can get 15% off your tickets. Hope you've enjoyed this one. We'll be back with another tomorrow after the second day of the WTF Finals. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 